We're going to be reading this morning, uh, continuing in a Philippians series in the mornings. Uh, we have a couple more left, uh, but today we're reading from Philippians 3, starting at verse 17, and going until Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. That's our reading. That's our focus. So let's hear together God's holy and infallible word. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That's our reading this morning. So the Bible uses a good number of metaphors for the Christian life. And we could call a metaphor a word picture. Earlier in chapter 3, uh, we saw Paul, who is the apostle, and he wrote this letter. And he wrote many other books in the New Testament. Earlier in chapter 3, he talked about straining toward what is ahead, pressing on toward the goal to win the prize. There and in other places in the Bible, the Christian is pictured, the metaphor is an athlete, and specifically a runner. From Genesis, the first Bible book, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the life of faith is also described as a battle. When Paul writes of standing firm in 4 verse 1, that's battle language, spiritual warfare language. And quite often in the battle, our call, God calls us to stand firm. With a war going on and with military language, we might expect more charge in the Lord, march forward in the Lord, attack. But even in Ephesians 6, which is uh, that most famous passage about the armor of God, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and all the rest, we're told to put on all this armor 
so we can stand our ground. In our texts, in Ephesians, and a number of other places, God doesn't tell us so much to march into battle or to conquer, but to take a bit more of a defensive posture. It's more stand up for Jesus than onward Christian soldiers, often in the Bible. But just because this is a defensive posture, it doesn't mean we don't do anything. You know, if you think about uh, football, basketball, volleyball, whatever, whatever sport, the defense is important and it involves activity, even if it's not offense. So the question is, what does standing firm involve and mean for our lives, right? What are the details? If you, um, if you play volleyball and practice volleyball, there are some defensive details. You have to learn the timing and the footwork to block hits at the net. You have to learn the timing and the footwork and the spacing to be able to pass hits, blocks that come to open areas, get the ball up, hopefully close to the center. So what are the defensive skills and details and maneuvers in the Christian life? That's the question, and that's what I want to share with you this morning. We can gather a few of these from our text. First this morning, standing firm means resting in the finished work of Christ. Why do you suppose our call is more defense and not offense? Well, it's because Jesus came to take care of the offense. Because God does the conquering. Jesus was and is our offense. So, the NBA, which I've not talked about in a while, I'm a fan of the NBA. There's this trend in the NBA of superstars not sticking around with one team their whole career. Like, used to happen more, but... Uh, there's this trend of, of them jumping ship to join other superstars on whatever team to win championships. And often in the history of the NBA, most championships have been won with two all-stars on a team. But it's gone to a whole different thing in the last 10 years or so with teams like the Miami Heat, the Golden State Warrior, multiple all-stars got together. And for a lot of people, that's just kind of annoying. What's nice is, by the way, that for this upcoming season, for the first time in probably a decade, there is no clear favorite for the championship because there just aren't teams stacked like they have been for most of the last 10 years. The point of bringing that up, with Jesus on offense, in the battle, in our spiritual warfare, no one else was needed. 
Jesus didn't need anyone else to win the victory. At the cross, Christ took the battle right to Satan. He took it right to the threshold of hell itself, and he won. One superstar, one victor, one conqueror, the divine Son of God, our Savior, our Lord, our King. And Paul talks about this work of Christ earlier in the book, earlier in chapter 3. Christ was born into this world. He assumed human flesh, was born of a woman, Mary. He suffered his whole life long, but especially at the end. He died on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the grave. And with all of that, he won the victory. He defeated the whole realm of darkness. And we're waiting for him to come again, says Paul in our text. And when we believe, Jesus gives us the ground that he won, the territory that he won, forgiveness, life, one day the resurrection of our, our bodies, the righteousness of God is something Paul talks about in Philippians, power. We don't have to battle we don't have to fight to get these blessings because he already battled for us. So we have them. So now we're called to stand firm on the ground he has gained for us. So we rest in the finished work of Christ. We put our faith in him. We believe in him. We trust in him and his work and we own it. And we give thanks for the assurance and that security that Christ has won for us as children. So, and we live in the blessings that he earned for us through his offensive victory. You might think, so we're talking about there's activities, standing firm isn't doing nothing, but how is resting an activity? Well, in my experience, in my Christian life, it, Resting in Christ is definitely an activity, or it's not going to happen. You know, I can wake up in the morning, go through the course of my day, like all of you, I'm sure, sometimes, with pressures, stresses, mind racing. And then I have to stop, step back, breathe deeply, clear my mind, and praying that as I do, that God would help me rest in Jesus. And then I have to hear and listen to Jesus' own words. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I have to remember that he's in control, not me. I'm not steering the ship of my life because my heavenly captain is steering the ship. It takes effort. And it takes discipline to leave behind our troubles and for us to rest in Jesus. Standing firm by resting in the finished work of Christ is a call for you and me, for each one of us. But it's also a call for the church. I think of us being a culture that denies Christ. A culture that waters down the, the truth of the gospel. I think in the midst of, of, a, of a time where... Christians have this appetite for a, a church light experience. Uh, we want to continue to stand firm in Jesus and in his work. 
And on his word, despite those around us and what they're saying and doing. In our proclamation and in our actions as a church, we say to the world, Christ alone. And, and when our students went to serve, they were saying that. Because of the victory that Jesus has won, because of his finished work applied in my life and to me by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to go now and share some of that life, some of that power, some of that love, some of that grace with others, especially people in need. Standing firm this morning means, secondly, resisting every foe. In 3 verse 18 that we read, Paul refers to the enemies of the cross. And if you remember, we talked about this a few times, lesson 52 of our catechism tells us that every Christian has three sworn enemies that we need to resist. And this isn't just in our catechism. This is the whole history of the church has talked about this. Three enemies that we need to resist as Christians. The devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. We read in our catechism, they never stop attacking us. And what these enemies do is they try to take back territory that Jesus has won for us. But we're called to stand firm, hold that ground, hold our ground. Just one example of this, I think of how the devil tries to steal our peace by reminding us of all our sins. We were enemies of God because of sin, but Jesus has taken away our sin, and, and so now we are friends of God. And so we have peace with him now because of Jesus. So we have to stand firm, resist the devil, don't listen to the lies that are contrary to God's word. He can't take away your peace. Jesus has secured it. You've got it with the Father because of Jesus' work. And if you trust in that work, you've got peace. We're called to resist the devil. We're called to resist the sin that remains inside us. And we're called to resist the world. And by that, the Bible it means the world in sin and apart from God. And we don't just go along with people. We fight these foes. We're called to hold on to what he has won for us. Even while we know, while we're doing that, he's going to forever and ever hold on to us and empower us to resist every enemy. He's going to do it. It's not ultimately our resisting. There's one more thought uh, that I want to move to about standing firm. And it's from verses uh, 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 4. Standing firm finally means reaching our goal together. What goal? There doesn't seem to be a goal in the verses we read. But earlier, Paul talked about pressing on toward the goal to win the prize. And we know that goal, the prize, is heaven. It's Jesus, it's knowing Jesus, it's standing firm 
in the Lord until the end. In the battle of the Christian life, we don't do this all alone. We're not lone soldiers or mercenaries or bounty hunters. Instead, we are in the battle together. We're on the same team. We see in these verses uh, about Paul is talking about some situation seems to be a conflict between uh, two women in the church. And it's striking in a number of ways. One is Paul is very, it very rarely does Paul mention people by name. There are a number of people who mentions by name in the letters, but it's really very, very rare that he does that. So it's something else that he names these two women. Um, and it's striking that in this book, he spends two whole verses on it. Again, two verses, it doesn't seem like a lot, but if you think about how concise everything is in all these letters of Paul, to spend two verses on these two women is, is, is a lot of time. So that all tells us that this conflict between Iodia and Syntyche must have been a big deal. And especially if it reached Paul, who was writing all the way in prison. And it makes you think that maybe, or likely, these were pretty prominent people in the church. Prominent people, women who had influence. And maybe there was even the danger of the church dividing with different people taking sides with one woman or the other. And so this situation could have really been threatening the church and as a result threatening the church's mission. So this is, this is a conflict and the fact is that nothing hurts the church. Nothing hurts the mission of the church more than division. And, and that's why uh, you know, because you know your Bibles, the Bible uses some of its strongest language against division in the church, against troublemakers in the church, against disruptive people in God's family. But you notice how Paul handles this conflict. It's very interesting. He's so tactful. He wants the two of them to work it out amongst themselves. Now, this is the great apostle Paul. He had and carried with him authority that the church and Christians in the early church times respected. He could have just said, Eodia, you're wrong. Syntyche is right. Stop it. Knock it off. Get along! But he doesn't handle it that way. He wants them to figure it out. Without judging, he doesn't judge who's right or wrong. He's not taking sides, and that's because unity has to come from the heart of God's children. You can't force it. It's a togetherness in the Lord in whom we're all resting. And we can learn from Paul here in his method of conflict resolution in the church. Instead of forcing it with a loud authority, he's showing us more the biblical way, the Matthew 18 way. Sit down together. 
talk this conflict through. Have lunch, go out for coffee. When you have an issue with a brother or sister, says Matthew 18, you don't run right to the church necessarily. The pattern there is that you go to the person to work it out together. If that doesn't work, you bring another brother or sister in Christ along for the conversation. And if that conflict still isn't resolved, well, then you go to the church. That's the Holy Spirit-inspired process for conflict resolution in the family of God. And this applies, and I, I talk about this for a while, but I'm not. I think of our kids, too, our children in our homes. If they're not getting along, ideally as parents, um, we're equipping them to work out their conflicts together instead of uh, just yelling at them to stop it, though yelling happens. I understand. I get that. I may have done that before. <laughs> but like for all believers, unity, getting along, it ultimately comes from the heart, right? You can't force it. It's from Jesus in us. So on this reaching our goal together stuff, um, the world, you know, and I think you know this, when it sees people quarreling in the church, when it sees churches divided, um, they use that as propaganda, and they use that for justification for and in their unbelief. And it helps them make the case for not going to church and not wanting to be a Christian. And they see that. And if, if they see that, you know, they're like, see, they're all hypocrites anyway. Why would I want to be part of that? Um, and I think, too, you know, how the church everywhere here, but every church, every pastor you talk to, concerned about the younger generations, right? They say that Christians not living up to Christianity's ideal, and of course, none of us is perfect, but we want to be trying and making progress. They say that Christians not living up to Christianity's ideal, in other words, Christians lacking a life of love, Christians lacking a unity around the truth of God's word is one, if not, of, if not the biggest reason that young people get out of churches and leave the church. And, and so this standing firm that we're talking about is never standing against other believers, but it's always standing firm with other believers, all of us together, whether we're here in the congregation, at leadership meetings, in our small groups, at our committee meetings, we're a team, we stand together. The devil loves to divide and conquer because it hurts God's people. It hurts our mission so badly. But instead, we stand firm. We rest in Jesus. We resist all our foes together. So division that we were talking about, um, and I just want to kind of close with this, it, it's, it's a real danger um, it comes up in so many places in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Um, and we always, as leaders, and all of us in the church, we want to watch out for it. We want to be on guard against it. But I want you to know where this is coming from, from me. 
I really sense a wonderful unity here at Faith CRC, and I'm so thankful for it. I, I sense and I see a unity around uh, the mission of Jesus for his church everywhere, that great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, and that promise, I am with you always. But I also sense and I see unity around our particular mission that we're called to as a church, uh, the mission of prioritizing and standing on and being transformed by the word of God, not just in preaching on Sundays, but throughout our whole church life, the teaching and sharing. I sense a unity in our desire to share God's love with others here and beyond. And I sense a real unity in a desire to be servants, to serve in the church one another, and to serve everyone everywhere we go. So I, I appreciate uh, the unity in general that I think we have as a church and that I see that we have as a church and have for many, many years. And I really appreciate the, uh, the unity that we have around that mission of experiencing God's word, expressing God's love, and equipping people to serve our God and others everywhere. Um, so it's together that we are and remain grounded in resting in Jesus and his finished work. Together, we resist the enemies of God and his people. And so we reach our goal. One day, Jesus, heaven, standing firm until the end. Our goal of God's mission for the church. All of that, together. Together. It's the only way. It's God's way. May God bless us and keep us in his way as we stand firm here at Faith Church. Even while he empowers uh, each one of us to stand firm in our own lives. Amen.